really what this is, is the right wing trying to dehumanize immigrants of color from the global south and lower the threshold for our national acceptance of cruelty. This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. To support the work we do for as little as a buck a month, or to sign up as a member and get commercial-free versions of every episode, plus members-only bonus content, sign up at patreon.com slash left or visit the Contribute tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to this episode of the award-winning Best of the Left podcast, in which we shall look at immigration from the history of dehumanization through to the future the GOP is trying to build with a demographics control machine. Clips today come from Who, What, Why, Latino Rebels, Code Switch, In the Thick, Counterspin, Speak Out with Tim Wise, and This is Hell. Even among European immigrants, though, do do we have a short memory in terms of the historical framework? Because certainly there was pushback against Irish immigrants and Italian immigrants at various points as well. Yes, there absolutely was. Um, and the uh, immigration legislation, restrictive, racially restrictive immigration legislation started after the Civil War, um, precisely to address this this problem in the eyes of Congress that people of color were now going to be able to obtain citizenship by being physically present and then having children who would become citizens by birth. Um And so there was a very strong push to racially restrict immigration in order to maintain the whiteness of the country. And that started with the restrictions against Asians, Chinese, Japanese, and then all Asians. Um, And Asia was defined as a very large territory, about three quarters of the world's territory. And then it was extended even to those Europeans who were considered to be not quite white enough. Um, so their immigration was never stopped entirely. People like the Irish, the Italians, the Greeks, the Poles, um, the sort of not white enough Europeans, but it was drastically cut back also in the um, starting in 1917 and through the 1920s. In, in a contemporary sense, when we have dealt with the issue of immigration in the past, particularly in the 80s, it doesn't seem like it was with the same degree, the same fervor that we're seeing today. Many of the issues were the same. The attitudes were different. Talk a little about that. Well, I think we do see something similar to the fervor we're seeing today. Um, but it was in, say, in the 19th century, in the early 20th century, but it was always expressed in explicitly racial terms. That is, um, the invasion of the Chinese who are going to take over the territory and who are inadequate citizens because of their race. Um, the uh, the attitudes are so extremely racialized. That is, these Central American children, um, and, and even the term of illegality that's applied to so many of the immigrants that are crossing the border is an extraordinarily racialized term that has almost come to to replace race because it's not legitimate to openly discriminate on the basis of race anymore. But if we replace race with uh, legal status, suddenly it becomes legitimate to to openly discriminate and to rail against people because of this, this category that they're put into, which we no longer call a racial category. Now we call it a category of legal status. The idea of illegal immigration, one of the things you talk about in, a, in Undocumented is that the whole phrase itself, the idea of it, is, is a relatively recent phenomenon. Talk a little bit about that, Aviva. 
Yes, and that connects to what I was mentioning earlier, mm-hmm. that um, that really until the 1960s, the animus against immigrants was very openly and explicitly a racial animus. That is, we don't want these people because of their race was, was the way it was expressed, both in the laws and in popular sentiment. Um, but there were some changes in the laws in the 1960s that, um, that really created this category of illegal immigration um, from the 1960s into the present. Um, and if you look back, say, in the 1950s, when large numbers of, uh, of say, Operation Wetback, when large numbers of, of Mexicans and Mexican-Americans were expelled from the country, um, it wasn't precisely on the basis of illegality. It was on the basis of race, uh, of Mexican being considered a race. We don't want these Mexicans in the country. And so people who were U.S. citizens were of Mexican origin were expelled along with people of varying different immigration statuses. Um, but the, the laws... Um, bringing Mexicans into the country as workers, that, that is, all of, interestingly enough, all of the immigration restrictions that were passed in the 19th century, the Chinese Exclusion Act, the Asiatic Barred Zone, the numeric restrictions on Southern and Eastern Europeans, Mexicans were never restricted during that whole uh, hundred years of, of laws restricting immigration from, say, 1865 to 1965. There were no restrictions placed on Mexican immigration. Um, Mexicans were crossing the border in large numbers, um, primarily as seasonal workers, um, mostly recruited by U.S. employers and um, brought in on U.S.-built railroads that were built uh, specifically to bring them here. Um, And from 1942 till 1964, through the Bracero Program, a U.S. government-sponsored program, explicitly set up with the Mexican government to bring in huge numbers of Mexicans as guest workers. So during that whole time until 1965, there were no restrictions on Mexicans crossing the border into the United States um, because they were not considered immigrants, because immigrants were people who were coming to stay, and Mexicans were considered to be workers, not people who were coming to stay. Um, So in the civil rights climate of the 1960s, two really important things happened um, that tried to start treating Mexicans like all other people in the world as potential immigrants when they crossed the border. Um, one is that the Bracero program was ended, and there had been a lot of political mobilizing um, against the Bracero program for its exploitative nature and its uh, its uh, the way it undermined labor organizing in the fields and the status of farm workers, whatever their their status as workers, um, whatever their their legal or immigration status, um, because of this guest worker program, uh, that was abolished in 1964, and at practically the same time in 1965, a new a new massive overhaul of the immigration laws were passed that uh, that did away with all of the prohibitions, racial prohibitions on immigration, and set up a uniform quota system so that every country of the world had a uniform quota. Now, the the rationale behind this was 
to de-racialize the system and to make to treat all people equally. Um, but what it did for, is, for the first time, put numerical restrictions on Mexican migrants into the United States. So that people who had been crossing the border for decades, even for generations, um, to work in the U.S., suddenly all of their routes, all of their legal routes to do this were cut off. And yet their need to work and the need of employers to employ them remained. So that the Bracero program was essentially replaced by a massive system of so-called illegal immigration. Nonetheless, that so-called illegal immigration was not... um, Nobody tried to stop it or prosecute it in any way until the 1980s. Um, That is, people were crossing the border illegally in large numbers to work. People who had previously been doing that legally were now doing it illegally. But there was really no no system at the border to try to stop them from doing it, and there was no internal system to stop them from doing it. Um, That doesn't come about until the late 1980s, early 1990s, when this this true illegalizing of immigration and the idea that illegal immigration should be punished and that the border needs to be controlled starts to take over. And this is where I see is the real sort of re-racialization of undocumentedness, turning undocumented status into something to be, uh, to be punished. I wanted to talk to you because I feel like this is getting too simplistic or am I overreacting to this in terms of what you and Mihint and other people have done and looking at this a little bit deeper. What's missing in this current immigration conversation right now that we see going? It feels like it's going when, well, when there's no World Cup or when there's no like FBI hearings. It seems like it's starting to get the attention of, of, of the national consciousness. But what's missing? I think um, I agree that it's it's very simplistic. I think part of it is that um, people really don't understand the immigration system. Uh, it's, it is very complicated and <clears throat> just trying to unpack and untangle that is difficult. But one mm-hmm. thing specifically with respect to all these issues that we really um, sought to make an intervention on is the, the prosecutions. In, in the whole coverage and discussion around the manufactured crisis by the Trump administration at the U.S.-Mexico border and the caging and internment of Central American children was the fact that um, they were not talking about what Jeff Sessions was doing, um, throwing the book and instituting the, the, the felony prosecutions of people. I think people weren't understanding exactly how that happens, its relationship to existing um procedures like Operation Streamline and and really understanding that that is the reason why, um, you know, families are being separated, children are being separated from the adults that they're crossing with. And and I think there was just like an immediate and, and understandable focus right, right. on the children, but not actually willing to look at the fact that like they are now criminalizing migration. And, and so we had the situation with President Obama, you know, the, the chickens come home to roost because the, the line of felons, not families, comes full circle to us again because, you know, he said, let's only protect families, not felons. And now we're seeing fel- families who are being felonized. And right. I, so, 
Yeah, but not to cut you off, but I, I really want to talk a little bit more about this. Um, but I think the point you're making about I, I think people are well intentioned. I mean, I've I've seen a lot of people like who have never been following this debate for the last couple of weeks who are like, why are these kids not being, you know, with their parents? But that would mean they would still be detained, right? Which is the bigger issue that you're talking about, is that this criminalization of immigrant families seems to have gone to an extreme level. Um, and you're kind of suggesting or, or, or saying that this sort of has a history. So tell me a little bit more, like, I'm not trying to, here's the problem when you, I don't know about you, but it's like when you try to talk about, about this contextually now in 2018, it, like I've been called when I raise these questions, people are like, Oh, well, you're defending the Trump administration. It's not true. I mean, it's, how do you try to manage all this? Because it, what we're seeing is a clear criminalization of immigrant families. Like that, that, that goes without question, but why, you know, how did we get here? Maddie said, like, like, like I'm struggling with this right now and how to best present this, you know, as a journalist, you know what I mean? Yeah, I think, <clears throat> I know I've, I've commented about this, that, you know, we've, we've sowed the seeds of our own demise. I think when, you know, last year fighting DACA, the, the rhetoric of we are all dreamers and then seeing Trump use it in the state of the union address. Um, again, the Fallon's not families piece. Um, and then also, you know, this, this messaging that just won't die that was created in quote unquote progressive circles of these kids here, these kids came here by no fault of their own. Well, that has been critiqued over and over again. And, 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 you know, we are now seeing the other side of that and the ramifications and the consequence of that. When, when now you see, okay, well, if it wasn't a children's fault, um, then it must be their parents' fault. And that was something that no one would touch in other issues at other times. And now you're seeing like, well, if, if they came through no fault of their own, whose fault is it? It's the parents' fault. So we're mm -hmm. going to criminalize them. And in the end, in the end, it's actually the children that are suffering. Um, and, you know, it isn't about, it's actually, it's not a partisan Democrat or Republican thing. They obviously play different roles. I, I'm not, it is important not to equate or conflate the Trump administration versus the Obama administration. Right. <clears throat> but this is years in the making. Um, we don't have a problem of inaction at the federal level when it comes to immigration. There's been lots of action. It's been a blank check given to enforcement. There's a virtual policy um, and, and laboratory that operates with impunity on border communities, on refugees, on people who are coming to this country, um, and the deepening of criminalization of migration that, that we're seeing. The Trump administration at the end of the day inherited uh, you know, we used to call it like they inherited a Porsche, like Obama handed over the keys of a Porsche and Trump mm -hmm. is revving up that engine. And that's what we're seeing right now. Today's episode is sponsored by Bolt, the security as a service company that is your one-stop shop for online security. Now, to be secure with your data, you need a few things. So here's a quick overview. You need a secure, encrypted connection between your devices and the rest of the internet. 
You need a secure and encrypted place to store files and back up your full hard drive online, and you need a way to create and store long, complicated, and unique passwords for every online account you own. With Bolt, they provide all of these services as a package deal, which allows them to offer it to their customers for 75% off. And as a special offer to my listeners, you can get an additional 10% off when you use the coupon code BEST at checkout. So with Bolt, you get their fully encrypted virtual private network, or VPN, which acts as a middleman between you and the rest of the net, keeping your data private. Add to that their unlimited online storage and backup solutions, and their password manager, and in one fell swoop, you'll have all of the tools you need to keep yourself as secure as possible online. I've made it easy for you to find this deal. Just go to bestoftheleft.com slash bolt. That's bolt like deadbolt. And don't forget to enter the coupon code BEST for an additional 10% off your bill, and not just for the first month, but for forever. Again, that's bestoftheleft.com slash bolt, and use the coupon code BEST at checkout. We have people coming into the country or trying to come in. We're stopping a lot of them. But we're taking people out of the country. You wouldn't believe how bad these people are. These aren't people. These are animals. Can you imagine, can you imagine these people, these animals over in the Middle East that chop off heads, sitting around talking and seeing that we're having a hard problem with waterboarding? We should go for waterboarding and we should go tough. And this is why we call the bloodthirsty MS-13 gang members exactly the name that I used last week. What was the name? Animals. Over the past week, I've talked with a lot of people about the word animal. The experts included a sociolinguist, a neuroscientist, a philosophy professor, and historian Ibram X. Kendi. As a historian... What goes through your head when you hear President Trump using terms like animal to refer to people? Well, what goes through my head is that those are indicative of of racist ideas. And throughout the history of racist ideas, certain races have been characterized, or I should say dehumanized, as in some ways animal-like. Dr. Kendi won the National Book Award two years ago for his book, Stamped from the Beginning, The Definitive History of Racist Ideas in America. And he says, in order to establish human hierarchy, humans have been calling other humans animals for a long time. 2,000 years ago, Aristotle was doing this. There were the Greeks and then the non-Greeks. Greeks were human. Non-Greeks were barbarians, animals who needed civilizing. But this idea of racial hierarchy, Dr. Kendi says, that really started taking shape around the 1400s with the transatlantic slave trade and dehumanizing language penned by a Portuguese biographer. Gomez Zurara. Gomez Zurara ended up being commissioned to write a biography of Prince Henry the Navigator. Prince Henry the Navigator really pioneered the transatlantic sort of African slave trade. So he sort of financed the Portuguese to sort of go around the Muslim middlemen through the Sahara and use the Atlantic to then go and uh, enslave people and bring them back to Europe and eventually started bringing them to, uh, to the Americas. And so when the king, 
I asked Gomez Rara to write a biography of the king's uncle, which was Prince Henry, he, of course, had to write a glowing biography. And in writing a glowing biography, he ended up describing the reason why Prince Henry was was enslaving these people was not to make money, but was to civilize them because they were beasts. And and so I, I write about this and show this in, in my book, from the original pioneering Portuguese slave traders to the French to the British, these travelers and thinkers were typically describing the black people they were enslaving as beasts to justify their expeditions, to justify their uh, mass murdering and kidnapping of, of these people. After the abolition of slavery in the U.S. in 1865, free black men were depicted as ferocious animals out to rape and devour white women. Thousands of people were lynched. Native Americans were referred to as savages, wolves, lice to be exterminated. The justification for ripping Native American families apart and forcing children into boarding schools came from Captain Richard H. Pratt's speech, Kill the Indian and Save the Man, delivered in 1892. The Chinese were also considered uncivilized and referred to as filthy yellow hordes ahead of the Chinese Exclusion Act in 1882. And we're going to get to more on that in a bit. And the Japanese were referred to as devils ahead of their internment during World War II. In the 1950s, signs could be found in the windows of businesses across the American Southwest reading, No dogs, no Negroes, no Mexicans. The list is long and it's hideous, and it's still being added to. Sociolinguist Otto Santana, a professor in the Chicano Chicana Studies Department at UCLA, analyzed the language about Mexican immigrants used by the Los Angeles Times between June of 1992 and December of 1994. And what I found was that the metaphors used to characterize immigrants were systematically negative. The major one was immigrants as animals. They were, they were pack animals, they were coyotes, they were pollos, they were any number of animals. The border patrol were hunting those animals, they were tracking them down, they were caging them, they were, were eliminating them. Professor Santana told me the LA Times journalists were not only quoting people using this type of language, they were using the metaphors themselves. And during that time, on November 8th, 1994, California voters passed Proposition 187. People who backed the legislation, like California Republican Governor Pete Wilson, called it the Save Our State Initiative. Opponents called it racist and anti-immigrant. It stopped all unauthorized immigrants in California from accessing non-emergency health care, public education, and other social services. And the law required folks who worked at agencies that provided these services to report people they thought might be undocumented to the INS, the U.S. Immigration and Naturalization Service. Now, Prop 187 was declared unconstitutional, but Professor Santana says the U.S. in 2018 feels eerily similar to California in 1994. And President Trump's rhetoric is giving him deja vu. By allowing and by utilizing the term illegal alien and criminal alien, which is his favorite term, he again legitimizes the discourse in the public sphere that demeans and dehumanizes immigrants. Professor Santana says illegal alien, criminal alien, 
animal. They're all bad. They're all describing a group of people as not human. Animals. When he characterizes them as animals, that reflects a concept that was used by the Nazis when they characterized Jews in 1930s that led, of course, to the Holocaust. When you dehumanize a person entirely, then you're able to eradicate them without concern. That's why good family-oriented people are willing to rip children out of the arms of those animals because those Latinos are not people in the way that good Americans are. Now, there are people who think that comparing President Trump's language to the language of Nazis is hyperbolic, it's offensive, and it's useless. One of those people is The Hill's media reporter, Joe Concha. Concha says that so much of the news media has taken Trump's animal reference way out of context. He says that the president was referring to MS-13 gang members, not all Latino immigrants. I caught up with him on his cell phone while he was making his way back home to New Jersey from D.C. When President Trump compares MS-13 to animals, they are. <laughs> they really are. They decapitate people. They rape people. They're, they're a horrible, horrible existence on this planet. And, and if anybody but Trump says it, it, no one even blinks twice when that is said. Didn't Hillary Clinton once call gang members, um, oh boy. Super predators. Yeah, yeah, exactly. They are not just gangs of kids anymore. They are often the kinds of kids that are called super predators. No conscience, no empathy. We can talk about why they ended up that way, but first we have to bring them to heel. And the president has asked the FBI to launch a very concerted effort against gangs everywhere. Historian Ibram Kendi, who you heard from earlier, says dehumanizing people is totally bipartisan. In fact, Everyone is susceptible to using this type of language. There's a long history of abolitionists using this language, civil rights activists using this language, uh, liberals using this language. I mean, to give an example, during the enslavement era, uh, one of the more popular uh, theories that abolitionists put forth was that slavery was literally making black people into brutes. So it wasn't just dehumanizing. It literally had dehumanized them and made them into brutes. And so that's why slavery is so bad. We need to eliminate it. It's made these people into animals. Uh, and the same th- idea has been made about segregation, about poverty. People who uttered the idea that, that young, black, urban teenagers were super predators weren't saying that this was sort of by nature. They were saying that's the result of poverty. It's the result of discrimination. So we need to, you know, eliminate those problems so we can sort of heal them uh, and civilize them back to humanity. And it turns out everyone is susceptible to believing other people are subhuman. I spoke with Emile Bruno, a neuroscientist and director of the Peace and Conflict Neuroscience Lab, and he helped conduct a study to test this. First, he showed people the Ascent of Man diagram. That's the one that supposedly shows how human beings evolved. It goes from apes to advanced humans. You've seen it. And what he did was he let people rate certain groups of people rate their humanity from zero to a hundred on that diagram. Zero being the least human, the ape, and a hundred being the most human. And when he gave that study to Americans, Muslims and what Bruno refers to as Muslim-related groups, like Iranians and Palestinians, they scored 10 to 15 points below white Americans. So they were considered less human. 
And it was Americans of all races and ethnic backgrounds who scored Muslims this way. If the media and the norms of a society are all biased against one group, then all groups in the society learn that, including the group uh, that's at the losing end. Renault found that the people who rated Muslims lowest on that scale, they were more likely to say they were against the Iran nuclear accord and for the torture of terror suspects. As for differentiating between an MS-13 gang member and a Central American immigrant, it's actually harder than you think. Bruno says human beings' brains are kind of pre-wired to attribute negative things to other groups. That's our brains on autopilot. So he says if you're not a part of that racial, ethnic, or religious group, the automatic response in your brain will conflate the gang member who was just called an animal with all the other members of that group, or the Muslim terrorist being hunted down with all Muslims. And one simple example, I've been looking at the tendency to collectively blame groups for the actions of individual extremists from those groups. Mm -hmm. And Americans, if you ask them how responsible are Muslims in general for an attack by a Muslim extremist, they will say about 35 to 40 points on a 100-point scale. If you ask white Americans how responsible are white Americans for the action of a white extremist like Dylan Roof. They'll answer about 10 on the scale. So there's an extreme difference in how much they apply the actions of extreme group members to the group as a whole. Bruno is conducting studies right now to figure out the best ways to jolt the human brain out of these automatic responses and into deliberate cognition. He says, based on what scientists know about how the brain works, he's pretty sure shaming someone for their beliefs and making them feel bad is not the way to do it. I spoke with David Livingston Smith more about this. He's a professor of philosophy at the University of New England, and he's author of Less Than Human, Why We Demean, Enslave, and Exterminate Others. He thinks one way to wake Americans up to the evils of dehumanization is to teach us our history, an unsanitized version of it. Americans tend to have a rather deformed picture of their own history. Mm-hmm. And so we're not so acquainted, like the Germans are, with the atrocities that, you know, white America has committed. If you're aware of those things, then it might give you pause. I teach a course uh, uh, called Race, Racism, and Beyond. Mm -hmm. And without exception, my students have never heard how bad things were. The loss of flattering illusions is a very painful process. Mm. It is for all of us. And, you know, I have compassion with that, but it would be very beneficial because it might actually result in some dramatic improvement in the nightmare of race relations in this country. Research actually specializes on sleep. It specializes on memory and on PTSD. That's right. Um, because you, you you essentially look at what sleep deprivation can do as a result of PTSD. So actually, your subjects are um, are animals, and um, 
What we do know is that pediatricians and mental health experts have said that the trauma of what is happening with these families being ripped apart, these children literally being taken out of the the arms of their parents, can cause irreversible lifelong damage. But can you explain what actually happens in the brain when a child goes through this trauma of being separated from their parents? And a lot of people might be saying, well, how do you see that if you're researching animals? So um, just explain those two things for us to start. Sure. Well, actually, the data that I'm going to be talking about comes from animals and also, unfortunately, humans, because, you know, people do go through chronic traumatic stressors and sometimes come into the emergency room and then we can do measurements from them as well to see what is actually going on. But what happens initially is, and right away, is the stress hormones, uh, cortisol and epinephrine, and in the brain, another hormone called norepinephrine, they get elevated. Um, and this elevation, when it's sustained, affects the brain and the entire rest of the body. When you say it affects the brain and the entire, does it affect it in a negative way or is it just a physical thing? Right. Initially, um, it's very good for fight or flight then those are good responses. But when the body can't do either one of them, it can't fight and it can't flee, um, the body really sustains that as an impact. The body keeps score. And there's a really well-titled book by a psychiatrist who uh, treated veterans of Vietnam for decades, and uh, he wrote this book called The Body Keeps Score. It's something that we can't control cognitively. We can't do anything about um, every tissue in our body contains receptors for these hormones, and it um, prepares us for fighting or fleeing, but it then takes resources away from other important things like developing emotionally. I got to tell you, Gina, when you when you said that, you have this reaction, fight or flight. We all feel it, mm-hmm. right? You can feel it when you see a cat, if you're afraid of a cat. That's right. And then you know what to do, right? Right. But when you just said, when you do not have an option to either fight or to flee, mm-hmm. and I just, like, my whole chest just was like, because it's like you're a child, you can't fight, and there's nowhere for you to go. I mean, that right. in and of itself, that feeling of helplessness, I, I imagine, has also kind yes. has some impact on the brain. Absolutely. If there is something you can do, that's really a good thing. That actually helps um, feedback onto the system that amps up these hormones and dampens them down. If there's something you can do um, to help yourself. And in fact, one of the key points for therapy for children is um, not necessarily drugs, but in fact, asking the child, wow, what did you do? How did you find the resources to cope with this? Um, making them feel empowered, mm-hmm. making them feel powerful. That's really an important part of treating people who have gone through such trauma. Right now, what we know of these recent numbers as a result of zero tolerance is that it's over 2,000 children have been separated from their parents at the border. There are advocates, there are medical doctors, uh, colleagues of yours, Gina, who have actually said that these kinds of separations, these very kind of physical um, separations and because of the conditions inside these detention camps, they're like prisons. They're called all of these things, but they really are. They're not good conditions. Right. Um, and people are saying that, you know, that actually this should be called child abuse. And, you know, Homeland Security Secretary Kirsten Nielsen's response is that she says these minors are very well taken care of and 
don't believe the press. And she says that the Department of Homeland Security is simply following the law. These children have been traumatized on their trip up to the border. And the first thing that happens is we take away the one constant in their life that helps them buffer all of these horrible experiences. That's child abuse. Can they get better? Is this permanent? How, like, is it, is it therapy? Is it going to be physical therapy? Is it just like, like, or are they all going to be impacted? So this damage is permanent. And whether or not a child is resilient, and there are resilient uh, people out there, but no matter how resilient you are, this is a blow. This is the equivalent of someone taking a hatchet to you and cutting off your leg. So um, those who are resilient may have only had one of their legs cut off or um, only have, you know, deep hatchet marks to their leg, but they are still um, damaged and they will be more susceptible. Study after study shows that they'll be more susceptible to permanent and lifelong damage from future trauma. Ugh. What do you mean by that? So you mean like, like, for example, because they've been exposed to this trauma, if they then have a small car accident, that it will actually feel like it was a much bigger That's right. experience because of the kind of built on trauma. That's right. They'll be more vulnerable to the effects of future traumas. It's a dose dependent effect. So it's the number of traumas and it's the sustained nature of traumas. So it's kind of the area under the curve. The more trauma and the longer the trauma, the more likely that these children will suffer in the future from depression, from PTSD, from all kinds of other developmental related problems. Actually, even just myelination in the brain. Myelin is the uh, protective covering around the wires of our brain, just like the insulation around the wires in our house. And that is going on, you know, really strongly in children and in the forebrain, which is our judgment and decision making center. That goes on till about age 20, depending on if you're male or female. And what stress does to this myelin is it impairs that cladding, that cloaking of these axons. Myelin is the thing that's affected in multiple sclerosis. So we know that it's important for everything that our brain does. And when it's not there and it's weakened, then all of our cognitive processes that um, are not myelinated properly slow down and become dysfunctional. And that once that critical period for the myelination of that area closes, you can't go back. Right now, we have no way of going back and opening the critical period and myelinating it in the future. Mm. We just have to work around the impairment as best we can. In these dark times, there aren't a whole lot of unambiguously positive things you can do to make the world a measurably better place, but there is at least one piece of low-hanging fruit that I always recommend. To help with our shift to a renewable energy future, we can sign up for renewable energy in our homes and offices. Depending on where you live, renewable energy may even be cheaper than the old fossil fuel sources, and of course, you only have to sign up once and reap the rewards effortlessly 
indefinitely. If you live or work in New York, Pennsylvania, New Jersey, Maryland, D.C., Delaware, Illinois, Massachusetts, or Ohio, you can sign up with the clean energy company I've partnered with, Clean Choice Energy. To sign up and support the show by letting them know that I sent you, just visit cleanchoiceenergy.com best. You can easily find that link right in the show notes on the device you're using to listen right now, or you'll find it on the sidebar of the homepage at bestofleft.com. It'll make you feel good every time you see your electricity bill, so don't wait. There's nothing stopping you from signing up to use renewable energy right now, and it's easier than you think. Again, visit cleanchoiceenergy.com best to get started. When it comes to energy, now you have a choice. On June 18th, ProPublica released an audio recording from inside a Border Patrol detention facility. Children separated from parents and family members could be heard crying in the background, while a six-year-old girl from El Salvador begged for someone to let her call her aunt. The recording was a reminder, were it needed, that immigration policy has deep and lasting effects on actual people. However, as Jordan Holy Cross reported for FAIR.org, as corporate media reported the story, the voices of those impacted most by immigration policy were drowned out by soundbites from Congress members and Trump administration officials. Looking at a week's worth of coverage on six major broadcast and cable news networks, Holy Cross found networks airing the voices of 248 sources, of which only 15, or 6%, were current immigrants, whether children or adults. Another 2% could be identified as past immigrants. Those who work with and for immigrants were also missing from many programs. 13 immigration rights advocates were cited overall, amounting to 5% of sources. Meanwhile, 62% of all sources were from the federal government. 47% were Republican officials, mainly representatives of the Trump White House or Congress members. 21% of sources were Democratic officials, mostly members of Congress. Put it this way, for every immigrant voice included in TV coverage of the child separation crisis, viewers heard from six different Republican officials. The few immigrants and civil rights advocates who were cited, Holy Cross found, often explained that those coming to the U.S. are generally escaping life-threatening violence and instability, a factor that neither White House officials nor Congress members touched on. Small surprise, given that that line of inquiry risks broaching the role of U.S. foreign policy in that violence and instability. There were counterexamples, there usually are, but overall, broadcast and cable news's narrow choice of sources meant a loss of critical context and coverage that tended to reduce the lived experience of immigrants to leverage for U.S. politicians. Let's talk about family separation and the border. Um, as I said before, the executive order has now been issued that will theoretically end uh, family separations. They, of course, said they couldn't do this. Then they did. 
proves that Trump was bluffing, of course, and he lost. He got beaten. Donald Trump is a loser. He has always been a loser. He always backs down when people stand up to him, which ought to be a lesson for the Democratic Party and anyone on the left. Stop pandering. Stop kowtowing. Stop trying to compromise with this man. If you stand up to him, he backs down. He is like the prototypical bully in the schoolyard who gets all up in your face and acts real tough until you talk back to him. And then he finds a way to back down every time. He thought, and it's very clear, he thought that this was going to be a political culture war wedge issue for him, very much like his comments about NFL football players taking a knee in protest of criminal justice injustice. And what it all goes to show is he really is only thinking in terms of himself and what helps him politically, not thinking about the morality of a situation. So if he's attacking immigrants, if he's attacking ball players, if he's criticizing Jay-Z from the podium of one of his rallies, notice the common thread. It is about appealing to some of the most basic racial and ethnic and cultural prejudices and stereotypes. And it is about doing that because he knows there is a significant portion of his base for whom that plays well. It is not necessarily about Donald Trump having some deep ideological commitment to white nationalism. I mean, I think his actions are racist. Make no mistake. I think his actions are are de facto white nationalism. But I don't give Donald Trump enough credit, frankly, to have a deep-seated commitment to a particular ideology. Uh, I think it may very well be there. But I'm saying, above all, we know Donald Trump cares about Donald Trump. And so he will play this fiddle because he knows that works. And of course, the problem is the more you play that tune, the more you start to like it. So even if he started out only trying to manipulate his base with this stuff, you know, when you say something over and over and over again, it does become part of who you are. So I'm not trying to let him off the hook and say he's not racist for these things. I'm just saying there's also a political calculation, a personal narcissistic calculation in everything Donald Trump does. His motivations have always been, and I doubt this has changed, personal power and adoration. And that's what he gets out of these kinds of culture war attacks and these kinds of xenophobic policies that divide the country and really the world into us and them. Now, there are others in his administration very clearly motivated by racism and overt white supremacy. Stephen Miller, for instance, Trump's primary influence on immigration policy, a man who's been described by literally everyone who grew up with him as the worst person they ever knew. Can't find a single person, apparently, that grew up with this guy who actually likes him. The only person from his past that seems to have any fond feelings about him is Richard Spencer, a known white supremacist who happened to be at Duke when Stephen Miller was there. And they were actually uh, worked together for a brief time on some right wing political stuff at Duke University. So that tells you a lot when the only dude that you ever hung out with who has any nice shit to say about you is basically a Nazi. Uh, you're probably doing life wrong, right? But that's the thing with Stephen Miller. So Miller is very much, I mean, his whole history, all the people that went to high school with him said he regularly made racist comments. He actually broke off a friendship with a friend of his because, and said in a letter explaining why, that he couldn't hang out with him anymore because he was Latino. So what more do you need to know about this guy other than one more thing, perhaps, and that is he also likes to trigger liberals. He is it's fascinating. There's a Vanity Fair piece on Stephen Miller that came out about a week ago. It quotes people close to him and in the White House as saying that Miller actually likes to see the pictures of children being ripped from their families at the border. And why? Because it makes liberals cry. That is some seriously sadistic troll behavior. And it's one thing if somebody's doing that on Twitter and, you know, in the sort of anonymity of their Facebook feed. But this guy is at the highest levels of power. People quoted in this Vanity Fair article basically said, yeah, Miller is Waffen SS. That is like the most fanatical element of the Nazi machinery, right? This is someone who, who wants to make deliberately offensive comments, did so in high school, wants to push deliberately painful and offensive policy just to upset people. There is a terminology for that. That is antisocial behavior. That is sadistic. That's who 
Stephen Miller is. But in any event, before the order, just so we, uh, uh, you know, sort of recap, there were about 2,500 kids who had been separated from their families. Some of them sent thousands of miles away uh, from their parents. Many of them uh, had presented perfectly legally for asylum at legitimate ports of call, and yet their parents were not told where they were taken when they were indeed taken from them or when they could be reunited. Some of the children taken were as young as three months old, and now we're discovering that some of these kids were given powerful drugs, psychotropic drugs against their will and without parental consent. There was a 10-year-old girl with Down syndrome ripped away from her parents. His da- Her dad is a legal resident of the United States, uh, was crossing the border again with this child uh, in tow and uh, this child and the mother, I think, and the child was taken. Of course, when this was brought up on Fox News, uh, Corey Lewandowski, one of the other sadistic members or former members of the Trump team, uh, said infamously, womp, womp. Right. In other words, who cares? You know, no condemnation from the Fox host for his saying that. No condemnation from anyone on Fox for saying that. No condemnation from anyone in the administration that he used to work for, virtually anyone on the right. Womp, womp, poor little Down syndrome girl. Oh, well, parents shouldn't have broken the law. This is the lack of compassion. And this order that has been issued now, it doesn't ensure the immediate reuniting of those who have been separated. It doesn't do anything to reunite them or even guarantee that that's going to happen. Now, a federal judge has just issued an order I read about today, which which does order the government to reunite these families within 30 days. But it's really hard to see how that's going to be assured. And its I don't see anything to suggest what the punishment is going to be if the government fails to make that happen. Are we going to legally imprison the head of ICE? Are we going to legally imprison Secretary Nielsen at DHS? Are we going to impose some type of sanctions on Jeff Sessions? I mean, what's going to happen if that doesn't happen? I understand the court's ordering it, but I'm not sure what the consequences are if the government fails to do it. And let's be honest, even if they stop the family separations and they reunite families, at best, all that means is we're going to be housing families together in detention, often in tent cities in the desert in a hundred degree heat, still incredibly cruel. And there isn't any need for it. You could treat these migrants as other administrations did administratively and civilly, releasing them on bond until their hearing and their adjudication is completed. I know people say, oh, they never come back. They never come back. Actually, the research suggests that somewhere between two thirds and even 80% of the people who are released awaiting a hearing on their claim do in fact return. There are other ways that you could ensure that even greater. You could use ankle monitoring or something like that. There's been some pilot programs actually that have had even greater success than the 80%. That number comes from a study at Syracuse University a couple years back. So the idea that you have to simply prosecute the parents and you can't release them because they'll just run into the hinterland and, I don't know, get a job and contribute to the economic base of the country, well, that's not even true. But here's the thing. The president you know, doesn't want to appear weak. That's why They wanted the order in the first place, and that's why they want to criminally prosecute people who are coming across the border rather than handling it civilly and administratively. Because if you don't handle it criminally, that's considered weak. The base wants border crossers treated like hardened criminals. These are people whom the administration compares to a relative handful of migrants who go on to commit serious crimes. You know, whenever this issue comes up, they pivot to the 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 statistically small percentage of immigrants, legal or otherwise, documented or otherwise, who come across and then commit crimes. They they assume by their rhetoric that all these people are future members of MS-13 or whatever, right? Uh, this is just a way to whip up fear of the other. This is not about MS-13 members. The president keeps saying, oh, we've sent thousands of MS-13 members out of the country. All these hardened criminals are the people we're deporting. Actually, you know, three quarters or more of the people that are being deported have never been convicted of any violent crime at all. Uh, most of them haven't even been accused of one. Only a few hundred actually, it appears, are actually members of MS-13. So I mean, this is just nonsense, but it's a way to whip up fear. 
And issuing this executive order isn't really going to fix that problem. Really what this is, is the right wing trying to dehumanize immigrants of color from the global south and lower the threshold for our national acceptance of cruelty. This is a president who says immigrants are infesting the nation. His words. And that is something frighteningly that a new poll that came out this week found 84% of Trump supporters agree with. That immigrants are infesting the nation and they agree with it even when you don't tell them it was Trump who said it. Keep in mind, a lot of times, you know, people don't necessarily hear what politicians say. But even when you present that phrase without identifying its author, since a Trump supporter would obviously, you know, tend to like it if they knew it was Trump, even the ones who haven't been told it was Trump and don't know that are basically saying, yeah, I sort of agree with that. And 41% of all Americans agree with the comment, which even though it's a, you know, minority, quote unquote, is still a pretty frightening number. And this dehumanization is working, right? We have story after story. You can see this stuff on YouTube. You can see it on website after website, documented stories of people talking about executing and killing and shooting border crossers, right? There was a National Guard member who apparently now is going to be disciplined, who got in trouble the other day for talking about shooting border crossers. There were frat boys at uh, Texas Tech University, same thing. They've gotten in trouble for making those same comments. There's a member, a former member of the Pussycat Dolls, very important in the world, who said the same thing she did the other day. Um, And you hear these kind of comments all the time in the comment sections of probably your local newspaper, let alone, you know, national news feeds, right? That we should just shoot them one bullet to the head and save the government the money, right? This is spilling over, I should point out, into the way that the Republican Party even treats its own. Recently, the former chair, the outgoing chair of the Minnesota Republican Party, who was born in South Korea and adopted in the United States, said that she has been subject to repeated racial slurs and hostility about her place of origin and not being a real American and being... Being, you know, the C word for for Chinese folk, which is not even Chinese, but, you know, it's a word that gets used against all Asians, uh, been called a dragon lady. Sadly, even in the face of this, she still denies that Trump has fomented this, even when it wasn't happening before uh, and even when it's been turned against her. So Stockholm syndrome is real, y'all. But the point is, this is eating their own like th- this, this kind of hostility. You cannot separate this from the larger phenomena of Trumpism. This is a guy who is essentially saying that the immigrants that are coming are not human. He's saying he actually said uh, during the, the height of this uh, family separation crisis that the children who were coming were lying about why they were coming to the U.S., that they'd been coached to lie. They weren't really fleeing violence. They were really coming for other reasons, which he wouldn't specify. But the suggestion was they were these nefarious reasons, like they're coming to take advantage of us, right? There's always this sort of notion, again, of infestation and taking advantage. This is a guy who, of course, has referred to African nations, Haiti and El Salvador as shithole nations, talked about Nigerians saying that if they came to the country, they'd never want to return to their huts. We need less of these people from shithole countries and more people from Norway, right? I mean, this is, you know, come on. How how much more of that do you need to see and to hear before you realize that this is about sort of a fundamentally cruel, inhumane, and at its root, really racist white supremacist mentality. Even during the campaign, when he started his campaign and said, well, you know, Mexico's not sending their finest. You know, look, as I've said before, no nation ever sends its finest. England certainly didn't. That's not who, you know, those of us who descend from Anglos, they they weren't the finest. The finest never get on the boat, right? The finest stay where the hell they are because they're winning. Why would they leave if they're winning? Winners typically don't leave. They stay because they're winning. Uh, and by the way, no nation ever sends anyone. It's not like it's not like immigration is this thing where, you know, the, the government of whatever, you know, actually like sponsors the boat and says, hey, y'all have a good time. Like there's nobody sending anyone. People are leaving. They are fleeing. And it's always the ones who were the quote unquote losers of their respective countries who can't make it, who were suffering, who were starving, who were being oppressed, uh, affected by gang violence in various parts of the of the world or drug cartels, whatever it is. 
It's never the finest in the sense of the winners, right? The most successful, but it is people who have the drive and determination to try to start over again. There's something beautiful about that, but Donald Trump can't see that unless those people, I guess, are from Norway or at least have the skin complexion of people who are. You write, the truth is that a number of key figures staked out a form of conservative populism based on ruthless demographic control long before Trump came along to rebrand it. He didn't invent the distinctive anti-humanitarian rhetoric of anchor babies, criminal aliens, and animals all on his own. He just happens to be its most flamboyant and successful practitioner. Conservative populism based on ruthless demographic control. This is in reaction to what the New York Times this week, also in a different opinion piece, called white extinction anxiety. To what degree do demographic changes define U.S. politics today in both parties, the Republicans and their fear of losing a white majority, and Democrats who are banking on that change to give them more power? Are both parties facing what they perceive as demographic inevitabilities? Well, that's, that's, a, really, that's a really great question, and it's a, it's a tough one to answer. Um, but I do, I do think that um, what, the, what Trumpism is really uh, tapped into, and and you you mentioned some of these figures that we talk about. We we trace a lot of this stuff, at least in the in the in the most recent period, uh, to figures like uh, Pat Buchanan um, and his candidacies in ninety two, ninety six, and two thousand uh, for the American presidency, and the language of uh, culture war that he sort of inaugurates becomes very popular uh, with grassroots uh, Republicans. Uh, we also talk about uh, people like Steve King who has been sort of beating the anti-immigration drum um, uh, more recently. Obviously, Jeff Sessions, who is sort of out there with King. Um, and then, of course, Chris Kobach, who's the sec- current Secretary of State in Kansas um, and is running for governor there. Uh, all these figures, uh, even before Donald Trump um, emerged on the stage um, to rebrand uh, these, this movement, so to speak, um, these figures all sort of made immigration and, dem- and and sort of ruthless demographic control the center of Republican politics, and uh, they very much pioneered the language of um, uh, anchor babies, of um, this concern that you mentioned about um, uh, a white extinction. They tapped into a, a sort of a cross section of fears shared not only by white supremacists but also mainstream. Uh, white Americans, um, that things are were changing too, too quickly in this country. So uh, all these figures sort of were doing this before Donald Trump, uh, but he's the one that really sort of uh, broke through the glass ceiling, so to speak. And you write of those, uh, a host of key figures, as you were just mentioning, among them former Republican primary presidential candidate Pat Buchanan, Attorney General Jeff Sessions, Congressman Steve King, Kansas Secretary of State Chris Kobach, and the person who led, he's also the person who led Trump's now dissolved voter fraud uh, commission, uh, consistently made control of the non-white population, especially the foreigners in our midst, the centerpiece of right-wing movement politics. Controlling non-whites as the centerpiece of right-wing movement politics. To what degree, then, is racism at the heart of the Republican Party? Yeah, that's a, that's a, that's a terrific question. I think, <clears throat> excuse me, I think that uh, for a certain se- a sector of the of the party, 
uh, it's an explicit part of it, right? That the people who are the avowed white uh, white nationalists uh, and uh, others who uh, who see uh, controlling people uh, as about controlling race and controlling culture, um, you know, that, that's a huge aspect of the, of the party, and it goes way back. Uh, a lot of this shift can be traced back to um, uh, uh, Americans' reaction to uh, desegregation, and then, of course, um, the, 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 the sort of uh, bolting of, the, of, of white voters from the Democratic uh, Party to the Republican Party uh, only accelerated after civil rights, right? So, so some of this was already happening uh, where, where, where many whites, many white conservatives were already moving uh, toward the Republican Party. And uh, what, what Trumpism before Trump had been doing was periodically sort of tapping into uh, the sense of, of white, white extinction that you talked about. White nationalists talk about it more explicitly, but mainstream conservatives talk about it more obliquely um, as a threat to the culture, as a threat to uh, one's way of life. Um, but what, what they both share is this sense that we have to control foreign people as a way of dealing with uh, these sorts of concerns. We've just heard clips today, starting with Who, What, Why, speaking with Aviva Chomsky about the history of criminalizing immigration in America. Latino Rebels followed that up with more conversation about immigration criminalization. Then we heard Code Switch's segment breaking down the history of using dehumanizing language to stoke fear and hatred of outsiders. In the Thick spoke with a neuroscientist about the traumatizing effects of family separation. Counterspin looked at the media landscape and explained whose voices are being highlighted and whose are being ignored in the immigration debate. Tim Wise did a commentary on his show, Speak Out, on family separation and the rhetoric of hatred. And finally, we just heard This Is Hell talking with Robert Tsai about the GOP and their racist demographic control machine intended to keep them in power. As always, you can find links to each of these segments in the show notes for easy reference and sharing. And now, we'll hear from you. Hello, Jay, Tim, and Spokane. Regarding the 3D printing of guns, I've been seeing a lot of news pieces about this lately, and I own a 3D printer. I'm not really a gun person. One of the things you have to understand about how guns are regulated in the first place is guns, like cars, are regulated by the serial number on their chassis, not by the actual explosion chamber, as it were. Um, the barrel of a gun or the, the cylinder of a car. That's just a replaceable part that you can, you can go on Amazon, you can go buy yourself another one if something happens to the first one. The trouble is, the chassis of a car is designed to take a heck of a beating. The chassis of a gun pretty much just holds all the parts together and doesn't take all that much wear and tear. This is where the 3D printer comes in. 3D printers are good at making pretty much anything you could make out of wood. They, they print one layer at a time in plastic that sticks to the next layer of plastic, on and on kind of a, it's a laminate, end of the day. 
So if you 3D print yourself a new chassis for your gun, well, you can just buy everything else to bolt on to it. So I'm seeing people say we need to we need to regulate 3D printers. We need to regulate designs. That's it's not possible. It's not practical. It's not likely. But you know, long message much shorter. If you make it so that you can't just go on Amazon and buy another barrel, then you can't just print another gun. Thanks. Stay awesome. Uh, hello, best of the left. It's Craig from Ohio, and I want to take a crack at the question that V had about uh, what progressive, progressivism is. I've heard this lament before, and it always kind of baffles me because I, have a, I think I have a very clear idea and have for a long time of what my political philosophy it is. And I think I can sum it up in three terms. So to make it concise, those words are egalitarian, communitarian, and utilitarian. Egalitarian uh, just meaning that uh, we believe that every person has fundamental rights, civil rights, human rights, uh, rights to protect or safety, food, health, clothing, etc., etc. Communitarian, I think, gets toward what you were talking about, how socialism falls under the progressive umbrella, and utilitarian really gets at the way you describe progressivism, Jay, which is finding the best solutions to the problem, matching solutions to problems. So anyways, egalitarian, communitarian, and utilitarian. I think if you just keep those concepts in mind, you'll have a pretty good idea of what progressivism is. And then to Ralph, I just wanted to mention he said that he hasn't talked to anyone who is on the left or is a progressive, and I wanted to point out that you can't always know if you're speaking with a progressive. I am a white guy, middle-aged. I present as a Republican, basically. I drive a truck. I wear camouflage, ball cap, boots. I hunt. <laughs> you know, if you just saw me in, in your daily life at the gas station, the grocery store, or whatever, you'd think, that guy looks like he's probably a Republican. Uh, so, Ralph, there are a lot of us out there, and you can't always pigeonhole what uh, a lefty is. So have more conversations, and you may find out. If someone asked me about my politics, I would proudly tell them I'm a, I'm a progressive. So maybe... Uh, just broach that topic with more people and you'll discover more of us. Okay, thanks a lot for the time. Appreciate it. Bye-bye. Hi, this is Jeff T., longtime listener from New York. I'm here to communicate criticism of one episode, kudos for another, and a general comment. Regarding the episode, Stumbling Toward Peace on the Korean Peninsula, we didn't stumble toward anything but an absurd photo op for Trump and a boost in status for Kim. The only segment that made sense was Thinking Caps, which expressed great skepticism about these supposed negotiations, including the fact that nothing concrete was agreed upon regarding denuclearization. Now we're hearing reports that North Korea is making rapid upgrades to a nuclear facility. 
Trump was played by Kim. Whether we like war games or not, they were a bargaining chip that he gave up for nothing. I'm reminded of Trump's putting an American embassy in Jerusalem, which should have been held as a bargaining chip with Israel. So much for Trump's art of the deal. I'm not prepared to give Trump credit for stumbling toward peace in Korea. He has an unblemished record of accomplishing absolutely nothing of value domestically or internationally. On the other hand, I was quite pleased with the Supreme Court show. It reminded me of my anger toward fellow progressives who said they won't vote for Hillary and dismissed concerns about the Supreme Court. Bernie was my first choice, but I voted for Hillary in the general election in part because I knew that she wouldn't choose anyone who threatened Roe v. Wade, among other Supreme Court issues. The criticism on one of the segments that the left has not organized around the Supreme Court like the right has, is valid to the detriment of us all. Finally, a comment about definitions of socialism, which was recently touched upon. The Scandinavian countries were cited as an example of democratic socialism. On a recent David Pakman show, he corrected this misconception. These countries are not examples of democratic socialism. They are examples of social democracies. The government does not own the means of production in the Soviet style. Instead, they have a market economy that's more regulated than we have here, plus a social safety net and universal health care and free college. In my view, the Scandinavian social democracies are the most evolved countries in the world. Let's be precise in our terminology. Anyway, I appreciate this opportunity to make a few observations. Jay, keep up the good work. Bye. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make this show possible. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who call into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, you can simply record a message at 202-999-3991. Now, I just have a quick response to the last bit of Jeff's voicemail that we just heard. He was trying to clarify between... Uh, democratic socialism and social democracies, just that sentence, I think, will make a lot of people's heads spin. And uh, I am actually surprised at my own perspective on this. People who know me uh, definitely know this. Uh, Maybe people who just listen to the show could sort of glean it. But I really like knowing the specifics. I really like being precise and accurate whenever possible. I try very hard to avoid confusion before it comes up at all times. But when it comes to labeling political ideologies, there are few conversations that exhaust me faster than that. Uh, And I, I just find myself not really caring because I don't think it's necessary to know what a political ideology is named in order to know what policies a person supports. You can know what a person supports without knowing what that name for that ideology is. And really, it's the policies that matter a lot more than the name of the ideology. So I I get exhausted and and try to skip past uh, that conversation whenever possible. There's one example I can think of of a conversation that wears me out even faster than that. It happened recently, I guess the royal wedding was on, Amanda was watching it, 
And, and I was like nearby and sort of looking at it every once in a while. And she made a comment like, oh, there are some of the royal kids. And I said, oh, sorry, wh- whose kids are those? And immediately she didn't even have a chance to answer. I was like, no, 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 wait, I'm sorry. Never mind. I retract the question. I have no interest in whatever the answer to that question is. So like understanding the family tree of the British royal family, that exhausts me more than labeling political ideologies, but they're sort of in the same ballpark. That said, I'm pretty sure what Jeff said was wrong. I didn't go back and find the original clip from David Pakman when he breaks down the difference between the two, but what Jeff just said is that democratic socialism is when the government owns the means of production. And just as a for instance... Bernie Sanders calls himself a democratic socialist, and I'm pretty sure he doesn't want Soviet-style government ownership of all businesses. So without even looking up any definitions of anything, we know that there is a major breakdown in understanding, not just with Jeff, could it be with everyone. Uh, One video of David Backman's I did just find, he was having a conversation with a listener, and he was saying, like, look, some will argue that the definitions of these terms are changing, or they have changed. And maybe that's the case. Maybe they used to have one definition. Some people are hanging on to that old definition. New people are adopting the words, but forcing it to mean something else. Languages do evolve. On the other hand, it's important for words to have definitions so that we can know what we're all talking about. So that's why this conversation is confusing, but mostly exhausting because it doesn't matter. So if Bernie Sanders, the most famous democratic socialist in the world, doesn't advocate the policies that Jeff says democratic socialists advocate for, well then I guess the terms are changing definitions and a lot of people can be upset about that and think that the terms should mean what they mean and mean it forever, but I guess that's just not going to be the case. So Jeff may be very accurate to say that Scandinavian countries are more accurately described as social democracies, but to say that the definition of a democratic socialist is that they advocate for government ownership of the means of production, I think is flat wrong just based on how people describe themselves and the policies they advocate for. That said, please, for the love of God, let's not get hung up on this Just find out what policies people support, and it doesn't really matter what people call themselves. As always, keep the comments coming in at 202-999-3991. That is going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks, of course, to those who support the show by becoming a member or making donations of any size at patreon.com slash left. That is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and leaving us glowing reviews on Apple Podcasts and Facebook to help others find the show. For details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog, and likely right on the device you're using to listen. So coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you every Tuesday and Friday, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. Bestoftheleft.com